chaos dragon is a symbol repeatedly employed by the authors of the Bible to talk about the spiritual evil that corrupts God's good creation. The dragon features in all three of the big prophetic scrolls, that is Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Last week, we looked at the dragon in Isaiah, and this week, we turn to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. For both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the same basic idea that we saw in Isaiah is at play. That Yahweh is going to hand his covenant people over to the consequences of their centuries of faithlessness and hand them over to the power of Babylon. But God will hold Babylon itself accountable for its evils, even if it allowed Babylon's evil to be an agent of divine judgment. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel lived through the Babylonian captivity. And at that point in history, the only other nation powerful enough to rival Babylon was Egypt. So you can imagine that both Babylon and Egypt feature prominently in Jeremiah and Ezekiel's writings. And perhaps unsurprisingly at this point, the prophets called them chaos dragons. Both their rise to power and their fall from power is just going to bring disorder, death, and chaos. Biblical authors use cosmic imagery to describe that. For modern readers, it feels strange to talk about a nation in such cosmic terms. And it also feels strange to talk about the collapse of a nation as the end of the world. So why do biblical authors think this way? Well, they have this view of reality that there are forces at work animating behind these human power structures that are also agents of death and chaos alongside these humans. Today, Tim Mackey and I talk about the chaos dragon and the scrolls of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I'm John Collins, and you're listening to Bible Project Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Okay. Tim. John, hello. Hello. Yeah. Man, this has been hard for me for some reason, this whole theme mm. of the dragon, mm-hmm. but very interesting. And uh, we're just going to keep plowing forward mm-hmm. through some of the ambiguity and discomfort and just kind of keep reading texts. Mm-hmm. And we're going to encounter the dragon in the Bible. Mm. But as we encountered the dragon or the sea serpent, it's also associated with other, I think the term we're just using is chaos creatures. And one other very important chaos creature in the Bible Mm. is the rebellious host of heaven. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the stars above. The The rulers uh, above. Yeah, or the sons of Elohim is how they're described in Genesis 6 verse 1. Mm-hmm. What I want to understand is the relationship between Leviathan and the realm of the chaotic sea mm-hmm. and the rebellious host yeah. of heavens, the creature of the sky. Yeah. yeah. Are they just two ways of talking about the same thing? Or are they complementary ways of talking about a deep nuance that huh. we need to really appreciate? Yeah, man, that's a great question, John. I think what you asking that makes me realize I have seen these two images of the deviant star rulers above and then the chaos creature in the waters below as associated and paired, as they are in Genesis 1 in the literary design, and therefore just kind of equated with each other, different ways of thinking about the same thing. Because the darkness is not God's creation. It's the opposite of creation. It's the pre-creation state. And so are the chaos waters. Mm Mm-hmm. So I had to also merge those as two ways of thinking about the same thing. Okay. So you just have the chaotic nothingness. Yeah. And then when God begins to separate out realms and orders, there are creatures on the land, there are creatures in the sea. 
There are creatures on the land and creatures up in the sky. Yeah, okay. And the creatures up in the sky are not bad. And the creatures in the sea are not bad. But then, as you read on through the story of the Bible, there are deviant stars and there's deviant sea creatures. And their storylines begin to overlap more and more and be described in analogous ways. We saw that in our last conversation in Isaiah, where a rebel king over the nations who wreaked like unimaginable violence in the ancient world is described as a rebel star. And then the downfall of all human empires that wreak havoc in the land is, is, slaying Leviathan. is described as God slaying the dragon. And swallowing up death. And swallowing up death itself. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a true merging. I think maybe what's helpful is for me to think of it this way. And we talked at length about this in the God series. When I look up at the stars, I don't think of them as creatures. I just think of them as yeah. plasma balls. <laughs> but that's a very modern, literal way to think about them. Yes. A more ancient, what we might call mythic way of thinking about them mm-hmm. is... A of, symbolic way. Or mm-hmm. symbolic way mm-hmm. is of spiritual beings. And that doesn't mean that spiritual beings aren't real because those aren't really spiritual beings. It's to say that... It's a way for us to think about something that is very real, yeah. but with mm-hmm. something symbolic that we can wrap our minds around and, and, and see, mm-hmm. and that's the stars above. So you've got the modern conception of heaven, which is, you know, we're in a galaxy, <laughs> a spiral galaxy with plasma balls, one of billions of these. <laughs> yeah. Spinning at different scales. At unimaginable speeds. We're spinning like 100,000 miles an hour so, ar- yes. around the arms of this galaxy yeah. or something and the, crazy the like that. And the planet itself is moving, what, 6,000? Around 000? the sun. It's, around the sun. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something it's really like, fast. It's so terrifying. It's something really fast. Flying space We are just cruising through <laughs> the empty space. <laughs> In the same way, there's a modern way to think of the ocean, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. like, yeah. I have a globe. I, you know, we, we've named them. Um, we haven't explored all the depths of the ocean. I mean, it's pretty pretty radical, but we have a way to understand it. But then there's the symbolic or mythic way to think of the ocean, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. it's about chaos and death and the nothingness that wants to come and take over the land. Yeah. The only modern equivalent I can think of is not even empty space beyond the earth, but rather the edges of the known universe into which it is expanding. Like what's beyond, you know, my son <laughs> oh, yeah, asked yeah. this question, yeah, yeah. the universe is expanding. Oh, what's expanding into? Right. Into nothingness. And whatever that is. <laughs> whatever that is. Would be our mental equivalent okay. of what the, the chaos waters is. The chaos waters are. But what's brilliant about the chaos waters is the nothingness is coming and crashing up yeah. against the land. Yeah, it's constantly threatening us. It's threatening us. Yeah. Which speaks to our reality. That's right. Of our yeah. felt reality. Yeah of the dangers of death constantly threatening us. Okay. So chaos creatures, Mm -hmm. there is something very real, a force, Mm. an authority, a power that's cosmic. And these are two different ways to think about it. The stars above, the serpent and the sea, Mm -hmm. they get merged together. And then other images are employed Mm -hmm. to get us to think about it too, yes. whether it be snakes or scorpions. Yep. Lions. Lions. <laughs> and then eventually this all gets to, in the revelation, some like the great red dragon yep. of yep. the sky with yep. seven heads. That's paired up with another beast 
that some that how represents a human empire. Okay. We'll get there. Sorry, I don't want to skip ahead. Yeah. So I think more and more I'm just appreciating this is a theme about the chaos creatures. Mm. We can highlight the serpent. Yeah. But you can't stop there because it's not as simple as that. It's not the only one. It's, you could say, the most primary image. Yeah. Is it the most primary? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. In other words, there aren't nearly as many biblical passages about a rebel star. Okay. You have Isaiah 13. And then star imagery is just more subtly related. You have the rebel powers of heaven that appear in Daniel and other Jewish apocalyptic literature. But somehow the dragon imagery just really took hold. Mm. And maybe it just speaks to the fact that it was just a really popular symbolic story in the ancient world. It's a cool image. Way more widespread. (laughs) And it's, yeah, it's a vivid, vivid image. Again, I just referenced in our first conversation, or no, maybe our second, the work of... Uh, the scholar Madad Ritchie, who's done work on how many visual representations of the dragon slaying myth were around mm-hmm. in the ancient world. Yeah. And her surveys. The mytheme, is that what you The mytheme, okay. yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, that's Robert Miller's phrase. And it's very likely that people encountered a picture on letter seals. Oh, right on decorative wall pictures, like many times in the course of their life. It was a well-known story. Whereas it seems like the rebel star story was way... And maybe that's because to really sit and study the patterns of the stars requires a lot of leisure time. Hmm. Very few people have the leisure to map it out. It's not as uh, sticky of an image, too. That's what I mean. As like a dragon. Yeah, that's where I'm going. Okay, yeah. All right, well, let's, let's look at... More dragon texts. Yeah. So the dragon features in all three of the big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. We talked about Isaiah in the last conversation. What I want to do is just look at some dragon imagery in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were contemporaries. They both lived in Jerusalem during its like last days Mm. as a city in terms of an independent kingdom. So this is in the late 600s and early 500s. Both of them lived through the Babylonian siege and invasion of Jerusalem, and they suffered different fates, though. Ezekiel was taken captive in the first invasion, taken off into exile in Babylon in 596. And then 10 years later, the Babylon came back and just straight up destroyed the city. And Jeremiah was there through all those invasions, and then was actually kidnapped and taken to Egypt Mm. by a bunch of rebel Israelites who Mm. didn't want to live under Babylonian occupation. So they both have very strong views of Babylon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, As you might imagine. Also significant was that when Babylon was doing its thing, the only regional player that even like had the possibility of standing up to Babylon was uh, Egypt in the Mm. south. And so Egypt and Babylon like loom large in their poetry and in their writings. So what I want to look at is actually look at a poem from the end of Jeremiah that takes all of our sea dragon imagery in an interesting direction. And then I want to look at Ezekiel's depiction of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which also develops our sea dragon imagery in an interesting kind of new way. 
So for both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the same basic idea that we saw in Isaiah is at play, that Yahweh is going to hand his covenant people over to the consequences of their centuries of faithlessness and hand them over to the power of Babylon. But God will hold Babylon itself accountable for its evils, even if it allowed Babylon's evil to be an agent of divine judgment on human evil. So the culmination of Jeremiah after announcing that Babylon is my servant, that I'm going to use to bring judgment on the nations and Israel around them, the last poem is about the downfall of Babylon itself. So Jeremiah 50 and 51 are these really long poems about the downfall of Babylon. We don't have time to read them all. I'm just going to pick up in chapter 51, verse 33. This is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Daughter Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time when it is trampled. The time of her harvest will soon come. Threshing floor? Trampling? Anybody? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't done it. Yeah. This is where they bring in the wheat? Yeah, you could bring in wheat in which case you would probably, stomping on it might work. Having your ox step all over it might work better. Having an ox grind it in a circular millstone Mm. would be like the most. And that's threshing it. Yep, that's threshing it. Trampling is what you would do to grapes. Okay. Yeah. So, And it doesn't describe which is happening here, if it's a wheat harvest or a grape harvest. The point is, is that it's getting threshed and trampled. But why is it called the threshing floor? It's the thing being threshed. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a place where threshing takes place. Babylon will be the place of the threshing. Yep. Time. Yep. Verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. Yeah, he came and took him out. He threw us into confusion. He made us like an empty jar. Hmm. Like a dragon, he swallowed us. He filled his stomach with our delicacies and then spewed us out. Hmm. What's the word there for dragon? Tanin. That's Tanin. Yeah. And tanin. NIV just says dragon. Uh, actually, I think that's my translation. Okay. I think it might have said serpent. Let's see. NIV says, like a serpent, he swallowed us. Like a serpent. So there's serpent meaning sea dragon. Yeah. The Tanin. Yeah. Lexham English Bible has sea monster. New American Standard has just monster. Swallowed Mm. me like a monster. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But Tanin. So here it's he's devoured us, swallowed us, ingested us, and then vomited us out. Mm. Is it like he didn't like us? Or is it like he got all the nutrients and then (laughs) I don't know how that image works. Or, Or is that talking about like capturing them and then sending them in exile? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Something like that. Therefore, this is what Yahweh says. I will defend your cause. I will avenge you. Speaking to Jeremiah, representing the Israelites. I will dry up her sea. I will make her springs dry. So like the home of the sea dragon itself will be dried up. Yeah. So we're tapping in here to the imagery of Yahweh overcoming the waters, splitting them and drying them up to make the dry land. Mm. And as we're going to see, God's going to, about to create a desert. Mm. This is interesting. Think about our chaos realms. 
This yeah. image is an interesting study in how those images relate. So Babylon will become a heap of ruins, a haunt for jackals, object of horror and scorn, a place where nobody lives. Her That's peop- the wilderness. Yeah. Her people will roar like lions. They will growl like lion cubs. <laughs> so now you're like, okay, so the sea is going to become <laughs> a wilderness. A wilderness. The city will become a ruined heap where jackals live and no one lives. But then there are people there because they're roaring like lions. (laughs) (laughs) But while they are aroused, I'll send a feast and make them drunk so that they shout with laughter and then sleep forever and never wake up. Okay. (laughs) It's going to give them a feast that makes them drunk and makes them all happy and party. And then they... And then death. Then they die. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's... Yeah. What's that about? So the sea gets dried up. Okay. The city becomes a heap of ruins that feels like now a desert wasteland. Mm -hmm. Jackals Mm -hmm. live out there. Oh, man. I was snowshoeing with my kids up in Mount Hood National Wilderness over the weekend. And we were trying to make a little fire. And it's winter Mm -hmm. here. Turns out it's very difficult to sustain a a fire in the snow, and we're having a snowball fight, and then we just hear this sound, this unearthly sound. It sounded like dozens of little girls screaming at each other. Hmm. And it happened in one, like for about 10 seconds, and then it stopped, and we were all, Jessica was there too, we were all staring at each other like, what? What was that? We weren't that far from like a ski area, and then it happened again, a closer and Roman's like, are those wolves? <laughs> and then Jessica and I were like, oh, like coyotes. Oh, they're coyotes. Coyotes, yeah. But it was, there was this, like a solid 10 seconds where I was like, what is happening? Mm. It was so terrifying. Mm. Now, we weren't in the desert. <laughs> yeah. But they're wilderness creatures. Mm-hmm. And so whenever jackals or hyenas are mentioned mm-hmm. in the Bible, think of coyotes. That's creatures of the night, mm-hmm. or you probably don't see them if ever. Uh, but, you hear them, but you hear them as these ghastly screaming creatures uh, of the yeah. wilderness. Wow! Yeah, okay. that's what it means to become a haunt of jackals. Okay, <laughs> objects of horror. Yeah. yeah. Anyhow, also lions. You have desert creatures, jackals, and lions. Mm-hmm. Because lions are a chaos creature, inhabitant of the night and the wilderness. Yeah, and then you have this imagery of like a feast and a party, but really you're just drinking yourself to death to never wake up. Hmm. Okay, so all of a sudden the dragon has become a desert. Yeah, and we have to remember, I think you talked about this, particularly in the Song of Songs, like biblical imagery... Mm-hmm. It's important to onboard it, understand its essence. But if you're trying to create a complete picture, oh yeah, mental picture, a mental picture, yeah, I'm going from like a sea to a wilderness. They're a jackal. <laughs> they're lions. Oh wait, now they're feasting. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to create a narrative that that all works. Yeah, in yes, a visual storyline. A visual storyline. How one thing turns into another. And I need to just give that up and just think about okay, how do all of these ideas, how do they compound on each other more yeah. in a like more what is symbolic way? Yeah, the symbolic meaning of each one and how do those meanings overlap? 
And all of a sudden, lions and jackals live in the wilderness, which is what the sea dries up and turns into. It's the opposite of a garden where you have grapevines to drink wine and be happy. Yeah. Instead, it's like an anti-garden where you have a party all right, but then you sleep in the dust of death and never wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a good reminder. It's about how the meaning of the symbols connect, not about how the visual symbols connect. Otherwise, right. it'll be chaos in your mind. <laughs> He keeps going. The sea will rise up over Babylon. The roaring waves will cover her. And you're like, wait, I thought the sea just went away. (laughs) But now it's back. It has a flood. Oh, it's a flood. flood Yeah. Her towns will be desolate, a dry and desert land. (laughs) (laughs) This is such a good example. Yeah. In the first sentence of the Bible. Now the land was wild and waste, and darkness covered the surface of the deep waters. So which is it? Is it a desert or is it's it desert it... wilderness? Is it abysmal yes. waters? Yeah. Jeremiah 51, verse 42 and 43 describes Babylon as getting drowned in a flood and turning into a desert in hmm. the same moment, like in the same parallel lines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 44 I will punish Bel in Babylon. Bel is the Akkadian version of the Hebrew word Baal. Hmm. So it's the Babylonian way of referring to their storm god. Okay. So I'm going to punish Bel in Babylon and make him spew out what he has swallowed. Wait, 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 wait. I thought Nebuchadnezzar swallowed us up. Hmm. No, it's actually the chief deity, the god of Babylon, swallowed you up. So we're merging the rulers above and the rulers below. Yeah. The nations will no longer stream to him. The wall of Babylon will fall. You get the idea. We could read on, but it's just the same imagery of merging rulers above and below, merging wilderness and the sea and desert creatures and sea monsters. They're coordinated. I guess this is all a way of meditating on the question you asked earlier. How do these images relate of a rebel star or a sea dragon? Rulers above and below, another way to say that is the monster in the realm of the chaotic sea becoming the monster within us, right? Ah, I see. Thank you. What I meant a minute ago is that earlier in this poem, it said that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, swallowed us up. Yeah. He's the dragon. But then later in this poem, God says, I'm going to punish Bel, the god of Babylon, and make him spew out what he swallowed. And you're like, wait, who swallowed us? The god of Babylon, Bel? Or Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Right. I guess what I, yeah, so what I'm saying is you can ask the same question. Who swallowed us up, Nebuchadnezzar or the sea serpent? Exactly. Yep, that's right. It's the same question. Mm -hmm. A is the same as B, and A is the same as C. A, Nebuchadnezzar, is both the dragon, and he is depicted or identified with the god of Babylon in some way. Hmm. He did make a big statue to be bowed down to after all. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe this is it. The focus is on empathetically cultivating a symbolic imagination that can use what feel to us like contradictory images to refer to the same reality. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Here's another. So let's get in a helicopter okay. and uh, fly over to... Um, Tel Aviv in Babylon, not the modern Tel Aviv in Israel. Oh. The, the first Tel Aviv, which was an Israelite refugee camp. Mm. 
In Babylon? Outside of Babylon, yep. And that's where Ezekiel lived. That's where we meet Ezekiel okay. in chapter 1, sitting by a irrigation canal at a refugee camp in Babylon. So Ezekiel writes a lot of poetry about Babylon, about the same people in the same time frame. And specifically, he really has it out for Egypt. Because hmm. again, Egypt tried to pose itself as a rival power to Babylon. And so in two poems in particular, he's gonna... He's in Babylon, but he's all bent out of shape about Egypt? Yeah, yep. Shouldn't he be more frustrated with Babylon? Yeah, interesting. There's less of an anti-Babylonian emphasis in Ezekiel. It's pretty strong in uh, Jeremiah, especially near the end, <laughs> but less so in Ezekiel. Ezekiel's more bent out of shape about Egypt. But Jeremiah is too. <laughs> because Egypt was trying to lure Israelites into alliance with them to rebel against Babylon. Hmm. So what I want to focus on, we've already read a couple times in the series from Ezekiel 29, where Ezekiel describes Pharaoh as the sea monster. So I just want to read it quickly. What I want to read more is the one after that. Ezekiel 29, verse 3 reads, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great sea monster, the Tanin, the one lying down in the midst of his Nile streams. So what's interesting here, the twist, is that the chaos waters are the Nile River, mm, right. which were viewed as a god in Egyptian religion, the river Nile, because it's a divine source of life from the gods. And here, some people think that Ezekiel has in mind like crocodiles, mm. which is possible. And they figured in the Egyptian imagination in a big way because they were big monstrous creatures, you know, down the by river. the river. Yeah. But the Tanin, as we know from the larger Hebrew Bible, is like way more. Yeah, It's like crocodile on mutant version. Because <laughs> look at what this crocodile says. <laughs> the so-called crocodile. He lies down in the midst of the Nile streams, and who says to me, that is to me, God, the Nile is mine. I made it for myself. Listen, I'm going to put hooks in your jawbones and make the fish of the Nile stick to your scales as I bring you up from the Nile and I fling you into the desert where the fish of the Nile will stick Oh, yeah, you and the fish of your Nile streams. On the surface, you'll fall. You'll not be gathered. You won't be assembled into the animals of the field and the birds of the skies I will give you as food. Whoa. Interestingly, that is exactly what David said to Goliath. I will give your body and the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines to the birds of the sky and huh. the beasts of the land. Mm -hmm. So that's Ezekiel 29. He compares Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to the sea monster. Mm -hmm. The book of Exodus did that. Sure. Back mm -hmm. in the Exodus story. This is a new pharaoh, but much later on. Okay. But in Ezekiel 32, a few chapters later, he takes... Wow, this is so interesting. I'll just read it. Verse 2 of chapter 32. 
God says, Ezekiel, raise a lament over Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and say to him, with a fierce and strong lion among the nations, you have compared yourself. That's a Yoda way of talking. (laughs) You've compared yourself with a fierce, strong lion among the nations. Mm -hmm. You think you're a lion. But what you really are is like a monster, a tanin in the seas, thrashing about in your rivers, making the water muddy with your feet, making the rivers turbid, (laughs) stirred up, silty. So wait, you're like, wait, is this a lion? Or is this a dragon? Hmm. It's really fascinating. So what is unclear in the poem to follow is whether this is describing the capture of a lion or the capture of the sea dragon. So I will spread my net over you. It would be a really effective way to catch a lion because mm-hmm. you don't have to go near it. <laughs> if you want to like thrust it through with a spear, you got to get close to the thing in the assembly of all the peoples, and I will bring you up in my... Now, the Lexham English Bible has my dragnet. This is like a fishing net? Which is a fishing net, yeah. So here, let's look up this Hebrew word here. Because there are lots of different words for net, at least a few different words for net, and whether or not it means an actual fisherman's net may not be totally clear. In Ezekiel 26, it's a sea net. Habakkuk, it's a sea net. Mm, But in Ecclesiastes, it's not necessarily a sea net. In Proverbs chapter 1, ooh, it's a net that catches birds. Mm. And in Micah, it's a net that catches people. Okay. What's the word? Cherem. Cherem. So the first net in verse 3 is reshet, and then the next net is, and in different English translations, it's not, translated dragnet, fishnet. So, again, I'm kind of posing this as playing with the images. Are we catching a lion or are we catching a a sea creature? So we have a net catching here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Depending on your translation, it might make you think that it's a a fishnet. But both words can be used to describe catching lots of different kinds of creatures. Verse 4, I will leave you on the land and cast you out into the field, that is the wilderness, and I will call birds of heaven to dwell on you and satisfy the beasts of the land with you. I'll lay your flesh on the mountains Hmm. and fill the valleys with your refuse. I guess like after cleaning it or something like that. The land will drink your blood. As far as the mountains, the ravines will be full of you. Ooh, think about the Cain and Abel story. Yeah. So what Cain did to Abel? Spilling his blood. Spilling his blood. But now, here's Yahweh confronting the chaos creature and bringing life to the land with its blood. When I extinguish you, I will cover the skies and darken their stars. I'll cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the lights in the skies I'll darken and set darkness on your land. Well, that took a turn. (laughs) What What a poem. Yeah. How you doing? I'm, I feel pretty lost. Um, <laughs> so, okay. He's a, Egypt is a lion. You thought you were a lion. You thought you were a lion. You, you say you're like a lion. But you're just like a sea monster. You're thrashing about in your rivers. Okay. So I'm going to catch you with a net. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw you on the ground. 
And this is a common image now of like his body becoming the feast the for feast. the, for the animals. Right. This is a very common motif in the dragon slang. This is what David said of Goliath too. That's what David said of Goliath. Yep. And <laughs> mm-hmm. then there's this imagery of like its body being thrown on the mountain while it's like insides being thrown into the valley mm-hmm. and its blood mm-hmm. like filling the land, mm-hmm. which is connecting us to this idea of the violence of yeah. Cain. What you spilling. did to others, spilling mm-hmm. their blood in the land through your Egyptian armies, storming around, doing their thing. Now what you've done to others will be done to you. Okay. So that's a lot. <laughs> but then all of a sudden we shift, mm-hmm. and now we're going to talk about the stars. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and here we are again. Here we are again. <laughs> so I thought I was talking about some chaos creature that's being destroyed. Yeah. That's enough for me <laughs> to try to wrap my mind around and meditate on. <laughs> and that somehow Egypt is, the, or the, the king of Egypt is this chaos serpent being flayed out onto the land and as a feast. But now all of a sudden, mm-hmm. I need to start thinking about the stars <laughs> and what's happening in the sky. Mm. And then he says, I will cover you. Mm-hmm. At the extinguishing of your heavens. So now it's the stars. It's the sky. It's the Egypt is. Yeah, let's see. The capturing of the sea dragon. Pharaoh's going to meet his doom. Okay. That's on the literal level. He's, he's anticipating, hey, you, Pharaoh, yeah. you're, you're rebelling against Babylon, and yeah. you're trying to get God's covenant people to get on your side? Okay. No, man, you're headed for a downfall. You think you're like a strong lion. In reality, here's what you are. You're an agent of death and chaos in yeah. the land. You're like Cain. You've been murdering your brothers mm-hmm. in the name of whatever deity or cause that you think you need to kill other people for. And so I'm going to treat you the way you've been treating others. I'm going to catch you in the net, toss you into the field, and your body, like translating the ruins of Egypt, will become plunder and benefit for the nations. So I'm trying to translate yeah. the images Great. here. Cool. So now we get to verse 7. Yeah. <laughs> this sentence doesn't is hard to understand. I will cover you mm, mm. at—this is your translation? I will cover you at extinguishing your heavens— yeah, let's go to verse 7. When I extinguish you, when I put out you. Yeah, I mean, so now you're just, like a light. Yeah. You're like a light. A metaphor shift. When I extinguish you, mm-hmm. I will cover the heavens and darken the stars. So I'm putting you out to rest. We just saw, experience that. Let's think of that as like taking your light out. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm covering the heavens and darkening yeah. the stars. Yeah, which is a cosmic decreation image. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the sun but, is going to get covered. The moon's going to be covered. And we talked about this already. The lights represent mm-hmm. the power and authority of the heavenly creatures being able to display God's rule and God's light. And so for them to go out mm. is... Mm-hmm. It's a reversal of the creation order. Because they represent God's order of seasons and time. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, biblical poets and the prophets used symbolic decreation imagery to talk about the cosmic significance of what today we would read in newspaper headlines of like the downfall of a 
yeah. some leader or governor. And both their rise to power and their fall from power is just going to bring disorder, death, and chaos. And the, the biblical authors use cosmic imagery to describe that. Why? Why do they do that? Well, they have this view of reality that there are forces at work animating behind these human power structures that are also agents of death and chaos alongside these humans. And that's just how they see the world. <laughs> and so they use this imagery of what we would think of as the end of the world to describe the end of Pharaoh's world hmm. and the downfall of another agent of the dragon. Why is darkening the stars the end of the world? Oh, because the stars, the sun and the moon, are all programmed to run in their courses to separate day from night, which is one of the fundamental structures of order mm. in the world. That's how the biblical authors imagine it. So the, if you put the lights out, then there's no more lights coming on. It's just darkness. Mm, I will darken over you. Mm -hmm. That's what, okay. All the shining lights in the skies, I will darken over you. I will set darkness in your land. We're going back to day one of creation and just that saying... That let there be light is gone now. Yeah, days one and four of creation. We're God's light and then setting the lights in the sky. Okay. We're just peeling all that back. So, at one sense, it's decreation. <laughs> in another sense, we are talking about this alliance between human evil and the rebellious heavenly evil. Yep. Right? Yes, that's right. And that is, it's implicit here in describing these human rulers in the language of these cosmic chaos creatures. And over time, in the Hebrew Bible those cosmic chaos creatures will begin to be described in other ways that when we meet it in the New Testament will be like Paul in Ephesians 2. He'll say, hey, you all, non-Israelites, just Greeks and Romans living in Ephesus, you used to be dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this age, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit... The power of the air. Yeah. The prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is working in those who are disobedient. And listen, we were all formally living that way. A power and a spirit. Yep. Spirit and a power that's the prince of the air. <laughs> so that language from Paul is the result of lots of meditation on the meaning of these chaos creature images in the Hebrew Bible. Hmm. And by spirit, you kind of went out of your way to talk about these they're creatures. Hmm. Mm -hmm. They have bodies, but they're different, fundamentally different bodies. And so when I think of spirit, I think of disembodied. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a hang-up we have. Okay. That spirit and... Whatever. We think of spirit as the opposite of embodied, but that's the opposite of how 
most people in the ancient world imagined it. They imagined spirit as just a different body. Different type of body. And that body is actually more real mm. than our bodies. Okay. Because mm-hmm. we just have bodies made of dirt. <laughs> they have bodies made of like God stuff, <laughs> divine stuff. Of light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're not there yet. We're not there yet. That's no. okay. It's all right. But we're at another stopping point. Yeah. The Bible mm. is, okay, it's hard to read. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is, John. It's not easy to read. Because we're wrestling with not just trying to sympathetically think about chaos creatures and chaos realms, mm. but we're talking about also how the Bible uses apocalyptic mm. like symbolism, you know, symbolism yeah. of the stars going out, decreation which isn't merely like the end of the world as we might think of it, but also is the end of just a, a king's reign. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And that all hurts my brain. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's cross-cultural communication. This is cross-cultural communication. Yeah. We're, yeah. We this are... hurts my brain, yeah, in the similar way as like trying to read Shakespeare in junior high. Yep. It's like, yeah. I don't, it's too hard. Yeah, just... This is a, such a different way of seeing the world than what I'm accustomed to. I'm, yeah, I'm with you. It takes a lot of work. Communication takes a lot of work, and that is essentially what we're experiencing. <laughs> Just trying to understand the communication of people from a long, long time ago. Yeah. But if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I believe that what those people communicated is something that God wants his people of all times to hear. And so that. It's worth the work, apparently, because hmm. there's dragons out there, and they want us. Well, that is the thing that I think we are comfortable hmm. in. I think this comes across in our like horror movies. Oh, yes. Right? I, yes. Like, they are our cultural equivalent yeah. of telling the dragon slang story. Yes. And yeah. we get it. Yeah. You watch it, and you're just like, just horrified, yeah. but kind of like captured. Motivated, <laughs> but then disgusted, and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and it's putting you in contact with mm. something. Yeah, it's really primal, primal and primal stuff to the human experience. And a poem about taking a dragon up and flaying its body and flinging it and filling ravines with blood. It's the ancient equivalent mm. of like these are ancient horror stories. Yeah, yeah, no way. Yeah, yeah. okay. But it's all pointing to something. This is not an exercise of just pure poetry, a pure imagination. Yes. The, the Bible wants us to encounter something very real mm. and meditate on and make us wise. Yeah. Yeah. It's wisdom literature. Wisdom. So that when we look out and we see individuals, communities, or nations, with a flagrant disregard for human life, swallowing up people, resulting in disorder, decreation of communities. They want us to see that it's not just stupid humans, that there's something even more sinister that would drive somebody to think that doing that is good in the name of some bigger cause. And they want us to trust that that force that seems to drive every generation of the human family into self-ruin. The power of the air. Prince of the power of the air. That it's real. That it has destructive agency. 
and that its days are numbered. Hmm. And that's what it means also to live in the biblical story and to have that as your imagination. And that's a different way of viewing reality than the ancient Israelites' neighbors had. Hmm. And it's the seedbed of hope. Or in Isaiah and the New Testament will be called the hope of new creation. Okay. Well, let's stop here. We're going to look at one more. Yeah, Jonah. Jonah. We're going to look at Jonah. Yeah. He gets swallowed. He gets swallowed by a by, sea beast. <laughs> by a whale. By a huge fish. Okay. That changes genders in the story. Oh, what? Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's wild. That's a good little hook. Yep. All right. Yep. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bible Project Podcast. Next week, we move on to the scroll of Jonah, a rebellious prophet who gets swallowed up by a sea monster. If the sea dragon represents the disorder of creation itself, then even the undoing of creation can become a place where God's purposes are carried through to their next step. The sea dragon fish belly becomes a womb out of which is born a whole new Jonah who then goes on to do the will of God. This episode was brought to you by our podcast team, producer Cooper Peltz, associate producer Lindsay Ponder, lead editor Dan Gummel, Tyler Bailey also mixed this episode, Grace Vang edited the transcripts for this episode, and Hannah Wu provided the annotations for our annotated podcast in our app. All of the music breaks for this series were written and composed by Bible Project staff. Bible Project is a crowdfunded nonprofit, and we exist to experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And everything that we make is free because of the generous support of thousands of people just like you. So thank you so much for being a part of this with us. Hi, this is Eden, and I'm from Champaign, Illinois. Hi, this is Jose Font, and I'm from San Juan, Puerto Rico. I first heard about Bible Project about a year ago when a friend of mine recommended one of their videos. I first learned about the Bible Project by seeing some of their videos on Facebook. I use the Bible Project podcasts as part of my morning devotions. I use Bible Project for their videos and podcasts. My favorite thing about Bible Project is their dedication to spreading the word of God through their free resources. The podcasts have really taught me the importance of grounding scripture passages firmly into the context in which they were written before trying to analyze what the passage means to me in the 21st century. And I am really enjoying it. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, classes, and more at BibleProject.com.